find the passage this morning in Luke chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 21. So if you have a Bible, if you don't mind turning there with me, uh, and if you don't have a Bible, there should be a few Bibles in your row, in the seat pockets below you, in front of you there. Uh, you can grab one of those. Uh, if you don't own one, uh, it's our gift to you. We would love for you to have it. Merry Christmas. Uh, but if you do own one, you can just return that to the seat pocket after you are finished this morning. Um, so once again, it's in Luke uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. And if you are able to this morning, if you could stand with me uh, for the reading of God's word. Okay, hear the word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and lied him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of the eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. Merry Christmas. Christmas Eve Eve, as Brennan said, or Christmas Adam, whatever you want to call it. Uh, my name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, if you're a guest here, I just want to say thank you so much for, for visiting us uh, in the Christmas season. We're glad that you're here and hopefully get a little bit of um, information uh, about who we are and get a little snapshot into that. Uh, this Advent season, we've been working through a sermon series called God's Greatest Gift, uh, and it's been uh, fun. We've had an enjoyable time basically trying to illustrate the importance of every Christian to respond to the generosity of God with generous lives of their own. And in the Advent season, it's the time where we celebrate God's greatest gift that was ever given, the giving of his son, Jesus, uh, to us. And so this morning, what I want to do is close out the series with a culminating sermon, and I hope to answer this question. If it's true that that God's greatest gift is Jesus and that 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 gift should motivate us, Uh, to be generous in our lives, and we've talked about in the different ways that we can be generous, 
I hope to answer the question, why is God's generosity so motivating? So what about the manger scene is so motivating, the gift of Jesus? What is it that's so motivating to us that would cause us to have a radical generosity about our lifestyle? Um, The gift of Christ to us, among many things, I think is a display of God's power, which is meant to extend God's peace to a broken world. Now, there's many things that, that Jesus as the gift of God the Father to us represents, but I think that's a major representation. God's power displayed in such a way that God is extending his peace to a broken world that needs him. Uh, and I think that we all need those two things more regularly than we recognize. Amen? I think the longer that we live, the more we recognize that we need God's power and peace in our lives. Um, We need the power of God when we're confronted with the tough realization that we are not in control of everything. We need to know that there is an all-powerful God that is in control and that he loves us. Those things are important and necessary. Uh, And and if you haven't had that realization that you're not in control, you can just push the pause button. You will find out soon enough, right? We all come up against those moments where we can't control what's happening and we uh, we feel like everything's in turmoil, We feel like the things that we had planned, like if you have a five-year plan right now or a 10-year plan or a 20-year plan and you're young, I wanna encourage you, that is awesome. I'm so glad that you have that plan. Just write it in pencil because God has different plans. Um, And and, and it's important in those moments when when we experience the mix-up of our plans that we know there is not only a God who is all-powerful, but that he loves us. And then secondarily, we need the peace of God. Why do we need the peace of God? We need the peace of God when we're overwhelmed by the turmoil that this broken world brings. And so when control is lost, the truth is it's never been there, but the perception of control when it's lost, then turmoil ensues, this inner angst of how can I make things back right? How can I work out what's, what's gone wrong? Guys, uh, for the most part, uh, you're probably a fixer, which means that you know sometimes your wife just wants you to say, I love you and I'm here with you and you wanna figure out how to fix her problems and it's probably been uh, a continual argument with you guys however long you've been married unless you've wised up and realized that at some level she doesn't want you to fix her, she just needs you to be a presence with her and there are times, as I think specifically as men, when God needs to tell us we can't even fix ourselves and what we need whenever we can't answer the problems of control is the peace of God which surpasses understanding. So power and peace are displayed in the Advent story and they are wrapped up in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And so what I wanna do before we jump into the text this morning is just pray that God's presence would stir our affections for Jesus Uh, and as we sang, Christ the Savior at his birth. That Jesus was Lord at his birth. He didn't grow into this role, he was the Lord of all. And for us to peer into this story and learn and grow from Uh, the gift that Jesus Christ is for us. So if you'll bow your heads with me, let me pray, and then we're just gonna kind of hop in. Father, we confess to you, we need your power this morning, exhibited in love. We thank you that we have the scripture, that your word stands as timeless. Father, I personally am so grateful that I don't have to get up here and begin to expound on my best guesses that I don't have to get up here and try my best to offer something about wisdom in life because your word stands timeless and we can just read it. 
Holy Spirit, we're so grateful that you are present here to open our eyes to the word for what it says, not what we want it to say. And Jesus, we are so grateful that you stand forth from the word and you make a case for yourself and have no need for me to do it for you. And so this morning, would you stir our affections, this Advent season, this Christmas season, would you stir our affections for you all over again? For those who feel very out of control, we, I pray, my God, they'd find great solace in the powerful King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Who exhibits his power in such a way that peace on earth is his message. Lord, would you bring that to us this morning? Offer that to us this morning and help us to receive the gift because Lord, the truth is we just struggle with receiving gifts. And so we love you, we trust you, and we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Okay, so the, the cool thing about this story from Luke is that it's actually framed in historical history. The, the chap, chapter two of the book of Luke tells you exactly when Jesus was born, and he gives you these details uh, that I think are really important and helpful when we start to frame the Christmas story. Uh, the, the book of Luke chapter two starts by saying in the days Uh, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all of the world would be registered. There's this major census that goes out. It says, into all the world. Now, why would uh, the writer Luke say that the whole world was going to be registered when he really meant the Roman Empire? Well, because the Roman Empire spanned most of the globe, and most of the civilized world was the Roman Empire at this time. So for him to say the whole world wouldn't have really been a stretch. It really was a vast majority of the world that was going to be registered in the census. And Caesar Augustus sends this decree out in order for everybody to go and, uh, and to be registered. So the entire Israelite nation, if you, if you kind of pin it back down to what's happening with Joseph and Mary, is kind of getting yanked around by the will of this ruler. Um, Caesar Augustus is the most powerful man in the world at this time. Uh, He's the one calling for this census. It's a way of kind of measuring his reach of power. It's a kind of self-inventory of his kingdom. Uh, if you don't know who Caesar Augustus is, I think that it will help to like, take yourself back to uh, high school English when you read the, the uh, Shakespearean play Julius Caesar. Everybody remember that? Like Brutus kills Caesar. Okay, hopefully that's not a spoiler alert. If it is, that's hundreds of years, all right? And you need to get over it. Uh, Julius Caesar was the great uncle of Caesar Augustus. So to flip that the other way, Caesar Augustus is the adopted nephew of Julius Caesar, the one who was assassinated. That's real historical uh, fact. After Julius was betrayed and murdered by Brutus, you guys remember that? Et tu, Brute? Okay, he gets killed. Okay, after that happens, Augustus is named the heir of the throne, and he's found in the will of Julius Caesar And then they form himself, Mark Antony, and Lepidus. They form the second triumvirate. All right, you guys remember this? This is where three guys get together and they fight against the conspirators of Julius Caesar to see who's gonna control Rome. Caesar Augustus, Mark Antony, and his crew, they win. And so Caesar Augustus becomes the emperor of Rome after Julius' death and they defeat Brutus and his other conspirators. Now there's a lot of interesting things, I think, about Caesar Augustus being the emperor when Jesus is born. They're not just interesting things, they are sovereign things about this man and why God chose this time. I just jotted a few down and I promise you they'll make sense if they don't make sense right off the bat because some of them are just so obvious. Caesar Augustus was a man 
because he was the son of Julius Caesar, or the adopted son, really, he's his nephew, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, he later called himself in his life the son of God. That's what Caesar Augustus called himself, the son of the divine. They have old Roman coins with Caesar Augustus' face on it, and inscribed on the coin says, son of the divine, meaning that Julius Caesar was God and that he was the son of God. This is what he called himself. Julius Caesar was deified, so the father of Caesar Augustus, he was deified after his death. When Julius Caesar was assassinated, they saw this comet in the sky, this big star that came, and it stayed for seven days. And everyone saw it and said, oh, this must be a sign from the heavens that Julius Caesar is a deity, that he died here, but he went there, and so they began to worship and deified. He's the first emperor to be deified in the Roman culture as God. Caesar Augustus then would later go on, so the, the man who was the emperor during the time of Jesus' birth would build a temple to his, his father, Julius, and that in that temple of Caesar, he would be worshiped from that point on. Augustus also ushered in what was called the Pax Romana. You guys remember this? This is like History 101, right? The Pax Romana. And Caesar Augustus ushered this time of peace, that's what the Pax Romana is, that was unseen before this time. So hundreds of years of peace in the Roman Empire where virtually they had no major wars on any front, Caesar Augustus ushered this in. And it was at this time, in this place, specifically that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now this is unique and it's important, I think. Because sometimes we read the Christmas story and it seems that Jesus' birth is so unassuming that maybe God just kind of, you know, decided to pick this time randomly. It's not random. His decision, the Father's decision, that Christ would be born at this time was providential. Because you have to think back on Israel's history and their longing for a king. So if we go back to the Old Testament, you guys remember the stories about uh, the Old Testament Israel longing for a king and yet Samuel the prophet being a little bit frustrated with their longing for a king. So there's this book in the Old Testament called Judges, and these, this time of Israel's history was whenever Israel had made their way into the promised land, and yet they didn't follow the ways that Moses had set out for them. The law of God was not being followed, and so they would be perpetually going into captivity of other nations or oppression of other nations. God would raise up a judge like Samson, that, that judge would then rescue them out of the hands of their oppressors and then they would have a quick turn back to God only to fall back into doing, this is the quote from judges that's often used, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king in the land. So the people cry out and say, we want a king. Samuel's frustrated with that because he says, God, why do they reject me, their prophet, and you, their king? He's mad. Why won't they accept that you're a good enough king for them? And God's response to, them, to, to Samuel is, don't worry, Samuel, they're rejecting me, not you. Give them what they want. And so God responds to Israel's cry out for a king, and he gives them earthly kings. The first one we get is Saul. You remember him? Saul's the first earthly king. From that moment on, things go despicably bad, basically. The only real decent king, which really we have some problems even with him, is David and his son Solomon. But we all know there's a few stories there that he's not perfect. Can we agree? And so basically, with all of these human kings, they end up being led away from God, 
away from following the ways of God and into Babylonian captivity and captivity with the Assyrians. The the children of Israel go from having a great glorious kingdom and a promised land that God had brought them into into basically being oppressed and in captivity and slaves again. So they went from Egypt to God freeing them, God redeeming them, God giving them a new land, and then basically a big degradation back to where they were into slavery. We pick up the story where Israel now has a temple, but it's kind of this makeshift hodgepodge uh, B or junior varsity version of what they've already seen. And not only that, but they are living in a time where the Roman occupation, they're in slavery to the greatest emperor and the greatest empire that the world's ever seen to this point. Things aren't great with the Jews, let's just say that. And Jesus is born at this time while the people are under slavery. And what would they be looking for? Well, the Jews would be looking for a king, a Messiah to come. Because the Old Testament had promised to them that in the line of David, there would be someone who would, be, who would rise up and who would free them from their slavery and free them from their oppression. That he would set up the kingdom of God on earth and that when he did so, there would be peace forever for Israel. They were probably looking for a display of power that would rescue Israel from Rome's oppression. But there's a few things that were important. The king had to be from the line of David. The king had to be born in Bethlehem. The king had to be born of a virgin. Why were all these things important? Because those were what the prophecies promised. So all these things had to line up in order for this person to be the king. And they're all looking for this, right? If they're worth their salt. And then in the midst of this, it says that God's up to something. So let's, put, let's just put all these pieces together. You got this poor couple, Mary and Joseph. When I say poor, I don't mean that as a euphemism. I mean they are not wealthy, okay? They don't have tons of money. They're from Nazareth. Um, and all of a sudden, this big decree comes out from this big, pompous emperor who basically is more powerful than any man has ever been. And in a show and display of power, he says, listen, all the tribes of Israel, they're all over the place, right? Uh, I want them to go back to their hometowns where their actual tribes are from, and I want them to register, Now, you got to think about the shifting of the world at that time. It's not like they just jumped on a train and made that happen. Like, they got on donkeys, they got all their kids, and they didn't have just, like, you know, one and a half kids. Like, most people had tribes of kids, like, legit. Kids are everywhere, getting them on donkeys, and they're all passing by to get back to their hometowns to register because it's not like in our day where our government says, hey, you need to register for the military when you turn 18, And then there's, you know, these series of checks and balances where you're going to get checked if you don't do that. No, this is like, if you don't do it, the the Roman emperor really doesn't mind killing you and your whole family. They do not care. The cross was a legit instrument used by the Romans to say, if you try to defy us, this is what happens to you. So, So everybody just jumped and did whatever they had to do. So you got Mary and Joseph, Mary being promised that your son's going to be the king, Joseph being told in a dream, hey, I know your wife's pregnant and that makes you want to you know, put her away. Uh, don't worry, it was me. It's a weird moment. And then they're getting kind of pulled around and as Mary is probably eight, nine months pregnant, we got to travel. Oh, good. And we got to travel not just like I'm getting in a car and we're going to drive. No, it's going to be a four to seven day journey depending upon what happens along the way. Okay. All of this is being janked around by a guy named Caesar Augustus. And yet, what is God doing? Well, he brings them from Nazareth to Bethlehem, which is an important move because now the Savior is going to be born in the city of David, just like promised. Okay? Not only that, but he's going to be of the line of David. 
and that everyone's gonna see that he's of the line of David, <clears throat> and it's gonna be unquestionable, excuse me. It's gonna be unquestionable because the census is requiring that they go back to their original tribes, and so Mary and Joseph both have to go back to Bethlehem to show that they're of the same tribe that David was, Judah. And everyone's gonna see all of Israel, even the Pharisees, even the scribes, oh, the census even says this boy is of the tribe of Judah. He's of the line of David. The census would even maybe go as far as to go back and say he's the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. You guys ever read those in your Bible? Matthew and Luke have them. They're, you know, those uh, genealogies. What are they getting after? This boy was in the kingly line that would be born. Then he would be born in a manger. Why was that important? Well, there was another little boy that once was born, and he was outcasted as well. This little boy was put into a bushel and he was left by the Nile out in the middle of nowhere. Do you guys remember this story? What was his name? Moses. What was Moses to do? Be the great redeemer of the people of Israel, to bring them out of Egyptian bondage from the taskmaster Pharaoh and into the promised land. Why would God want his son to be born in a manger outcasted away from the inn? Well, because he wants everybody to know this is the one that I told you would be greater than Moses. And just in case you didn't get it, then when Herod the king wants to kill all the firstborns in hopes of killing Jesus, where does Jesus flee to? Egypt. Why? Because it fulfills the scripture, out of Egypt have I called my son. It's almost as though God planned it, right? Now, I want you to think of this for a moment. At the time when Caesar Augustus has built a temple for his father because of a star that shone in the sky and proved that he was deity, God the Father places a star that leads the Magi to his son in a manger to prove that this is my son in the midst of the rule and reign of Caesar Augustus, and he uses the pride of Caesar Augustus in a census in order to make all of this happen and orchestrates it without ever uttering a word. He says, I'll let the, the king, the emperor of the world do what he will, and when he does what he will, he does what I will. At a time when the emperor of Rome is arguably more powerful than any man has ever been, God shows his might over him. But the interesting thing is he doesn't do it in a show of outward strength, but he does it in what Robert Capon calls the left-handed power of God. <laughs> he shows that he can permit Augustus to act out in displays of grandeur and that in the end, he's gonna merely play the hand that God has provided. Now think about this. This is exactly what God does to Satan when Satan looks to crucify Christ as a show of force and he ends up allowing for the salvation of the whole world through his pride. This is how God operates. Now I got this quote and I found this as I studied for the sermon in happenstance and I just couldn't pass it up. It's a little bit long, but it's from Napoleon Bonaparte. And Napoleon was a man who would have understood power uh, he, he led a great revolution. This man is known for that. And he, this quote comes from after he was exiled and after he was banished. And he's by himself and he's having a conversation with one of his scribes and they're talking to one another. And he asked his scribe, what do you think about Jesus of Nazareth? The scribe responds and says, I'm not sure. I don't really know who he is. And then Napoleon responds after all of his life like this. I will tell you, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself have founded great empires, but our empires were founded on force. Jesus alone founded his empire on love, and to this day, millions would die for him. 
I think I understand something of human nature. And I tell you, all these were men, and I am a man, but Jesus Christ is more than a man. I have inspired multitudes with a devotion so enthusiastic that they would have died for me. But to do this, it was necessary that I should be visibly present with the electric influence of my looks, words, voice. Who cares for me now, removed as I am from the active scenes of life and from the presence of men? Who would die for me now? This is a man in exile thinking, no one would die for me now, though. Now watch how he continues. Christ alone across the chasm of 18 centuries, makes a demand which is beyond all others difficult to satisfy. He asks more than a father can demand of his child, or a bride of her spouse, or a man of his brother. He asks for the human heart. He will have it entirely to himself. He demands it unconditionally, and forthwith, his demand is granted. Wonderful. That's what he says. In defiance of time and space, the soul of man, with all its powers and faculties, becomes an annexation to the empire of Christ. This phenomenon is unaccountable. I love how he says unaccountable, meaning God is not accountable to anyone. It is altogether beyond the scope of man's creative powers. Time, the great destroyer, is powerful, powerless to extinguish this sacred flame. This is what strikes me most. This is what proves to me quite convincingly that Jesus Christ is God. Close quote. So for Napoleon, who knew something of power, it was was not just that God showed his power in Christ's birth, but it was the way in which he did it. So for Napoleon, he says, there's a way to gain allegiance and obedience through manipulation and force. And I did that. And Caesar did that. And he goes on, right? Alexander the Great did that. He says, but to do it through love and then to extend thousands of years where people still give you their allegiance, only Christ did that. No one's like him in that. He said, you don't even have to have the visible presence of Christ for his kingdom to continue to grow. He says, there's none like him. This is how I know that Jesus Christ is not just merely a man. He says, because I know the nature of men. I led them. But this is not a man. You see, it's the power of God displayed in the story of Christ's love here at the manger scene that turned the heart of a guy like Napoleon. I think when we think of the gift of Christmas, it's God revealing to us that he is powerful enough to move the winds of history, the hearts of kings, without much effort at all, and yet his power should terrify us, but it's used in the Christmas story to calm us and bring peace. Isn't that interesting? That kind of power should scare the mess out of us, shouldn't it? That he doesn't really have to move a finger at all to take a guy like Caesar Augustus to get him to do exactly what he wants him to do. And yet God uses that power to say, you should have peace. So what we have in verse number 14 is that the shepherds are introduced to the angels. The angels tell them Jesus is gonna be born. And what is the message in verse 14? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those whom whom he was pleased. I love that because the angels show up and, and rightly so, the shepherds are terrified and the angels say, don't be afraid. My God who is this powerful brings peace. I bring you a message of peace. Now remember, in the midst of all of this time, what's happening in world history? Well, the Pax Romana is being ushered in, right? 
So this time of great peace that Caesar Augustus is getting all this praise for enacting, the prince of peace is born. And then angels announce, I bring you real peace. When you have this fictitious peace, you guys remember the Old, the Old Testament prophets, they say when the people say peace, peace, sudden destruction will come. There's all this talk, right, in the Old Testament prophets where he says that these people are gonna tell you there's all this peace. Don't believe them because only I bring peace. So they have all these people saying, look, Caesar, the, the son of God brings us peace, Caesar Augustus. He brings peace to our lands. Look at all that he's doing. Well, we know that only a couple hundred years later, this is all gonna go to naught, right? Because a man can't bring peace. Only the God-man can bring peace, true peace. And so Jesus is born as the true son of God, the star shining on him. And in verse 14, it says, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Bring yourself back to where we are. You and I would probably not let our kids be born in a manger. Can we agree? Like, I, I know most of you, okay? I've seen how you treat your children. I know you wouldn't, all right? Most of us, we get terrified when other kids sniffle around our kid. We're scared. We're like, oh, get him away. You know, you get Darth Vader mask for your kid to put him in the, you know, the nursery. Uh, we are protective people. Some of you, as moms, you know, you're a helicopter mom. You can't help it, okay? And I'm not down on you. Do what you need to do, okay? Go to counseling, <clears throat> maybe, but you're struggling. Dad, some of you, <clears throat> I struggle sometimes with my son. I don't want him to be hurt. I don't want, you know, something to happen, you know, but, but I probably, you know, toe the line. He gets on the playground. He starts doing things where he could probably break a bone, and I let it happen. Um, but for the most part, I'm protective, if we had to choose where we want our child to be born, it would not be the circumstances in which Jesus is born. Traveling, away in another town, the whole, the whole world is traveling as well. So I don't know if you thought through this one, but I thought through it this week. Uh, what about this? When we drive in Houston, knowing full well that it's gonna be traffic, there are people on the road who are absolutely crazy. Sometimes it's us, and you're afraid for your own safety. What about when you have to travel, but someone else told you you have to travel, and now you have this traffic jam of the world happening because someone else forced it upon you? You're already mad when you do it on your own volition. How much more so whenever somebody else does it for you? So it's probably very chaotic. There's probably a lot of crime in this time, and Jesus is born. They don't have a hotel room for him, so he's born in the stables, all right? It's, it's not the most sanitary of births. It's not the most safe of nights. Like we sing Silent Night. There's a lot of turmoil around the Silent Night, isn't there? So it's a, like when your baby is born to the sounds of animals, that's not all that great. And yet that's what happens. Now I want you to consider this for a moment. Why would God want that? So I thought through this sum and I came to this conclusion. And you could take it or leave it. Um, but I think it's helpful. When I was young, I used to do this thing where if my mom would tell me, Court, don't, you know, don't get too close to the edge. I don't want you to fall. The next thing that I would do is I would hang my feet over the edge and sit on the edge, just as so she knew I'm not afraid of it. If someone told me or said to me, if we're playing basketball, that they're gonna steal the ball from me, the next thing that I would do is I would tease them by putting out in front of them close so they think they could have it, just so they would know you'll never take it from me. This is my personality. Once you told me you were gonna do something or you were afraid that something was gonna happen to me, I would then do something just so you know I'm in control of this situation. Everything's gonna be fine. Now I think some of that is our prideful nature. But when I looked at this, I thought, 
God allows Jesus to be born in these circumstances, maybe not just to fulfill prophecy, but to prove to Herod and every other king, there's not even a chance that you're gonna harm Jesus, and I'm not really afraid of it. Until Jesus was willing to go to the cross, there, were, there was no one who was going to harm him. We know this because whenever he was got to get pushed off the cliff, it said he walked through the midst of them, and most commentators say that maybe he went into like some third dimension or something, but he walked right through the crowds. I think maybe God the Father here is showing in a show of power to the rest of the kings of the earth that he would allow this kind of humble beginnings for the Christ child for a myriad of reasons, but one of them is I still hold the cards. And everyone needs to know that. And I say this because let's see some examples throughout the Gospels. Well, number one, Jesus' parents get terrified when they leave the temple and realize that their 12-year-old son was left behind. You guys remember this story? They leave Jesus behind. They're like, oh no, where's Jesus? And they start freaking out. It says three days they lost their kid. Could you imagine losing your kid for three days? That's scary. Like you lose your kid for 13 minutes in H-E-B and you're, you're on the, you know, the, the announcements. Three days they're looking around for Jesus. They can't find him. They show up to the temple. Oh, Jesus is teaching the scribes and the Pharisees. They're frantic. They come to him. Where have you been? And it says, Jesus says what? Why are you worried? That's frustrating, first of all. Secondarily, did you not know I'd be in my father's house? Absolutely zero anxiety in Christ. There's none. 12-year-old boys teaching the scribes and the Pharisees. And he's like, why are you worried about it, mom? Okay, let's go on. Jesus' disciples are terrified when they're on the Sea of Galilee and the boat is rocking and seemingly gonna topple over because of a storm. They're, they're pulling buckets out. They're pouring water out of the boat. They say, where is Jesus? They go down and what is Jesus doing? He's asleep on a cushion. That's what the Bible says. <laughs> they shake him and wake him up from his slumber. Jesus, we're gonna perish. We're all gonna die. He says, why are you afraid? Again, it's frustrating. Why are you worried? And then what does he say? Peace be still. So he's calm. Turns back to the disciples and says, you have little faith. And then in my version of the story, he goes back to sleep. <laughs> I don't know if that really happens, but that just seems like probably what he would do. Or how about this one? Jesus' followers are terrified as he is killed on a cross right in front of their eyes. The kingdom is at stake here. Our, our Lord and Savior was mutilated and humiliated in front of our eyes. And what's the first words that he says to Mary as she's in the garden of the gravesite? Why are you crying, daughter? That's frustrating, right? Except that the resurrected Christ is there. You see, I think that maybe, just maybe, the circumstances surrounding Christ's birth are meant to portray to us that when you and I are not in control, and that is always, that our God is always in control and at peace. When we have an all-powerful God that loves us the way that our God loves us, we too can have the peace that he offers to us because we can trust that if he can turn the king's heart like a stream of water, would he not also care for you? Or like Jesus said, if I care for the sparrows, and you are of much greater value than the sparrows. I like that Jesus says that. He makes sure you know. How will I not also care for you of you little faith? He talks about the Father, particularly the Father's care. You see, we live in a world that is at war with God. We are at war within ourselves. Fear rules the airwaves, the news cycle, social media. 
Fear is such a powerful motivator in our culture to do things that we would never do, say things that we would never say, believe things that we would never believe. Fear motivates. And our God asks us, why are you afraid? Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And I think the manger scene offers that as the helpless babe is truly the Lord of all. God was willing to be that vulnerable in that moment to remind us that he is God. Vulnerability should always have an asterisk when it's next to God's name. And that asterisk being, he's God. So in our vulnerabilities, there should be an asterisk for the Christian. We are as vulnerable only in so much as we are unbelieving, right? Vulnerability is not a bad thing. A vulnerability in light of being near to Jesus allows us to also be peaceful and confident. This is what C.H. Spurgeon said about the manger scene. He says, but now, when the newborn king made his appearance, the swaddling band with which he was wrapped up was the white flag of peace. The manger was the place where the treaty was signed, whereby warfare should be stopped between man's conscience and himself between man's conscience and his God. It was then that day the trumpet blew. Sheath the sword, O man. Sheath the sword, O conscience. For God is now at peace with man and man at peace with God. And then he makes this imploring thought, which I wanna give to you this morning. Do you not feel it, my brethren, that the gospel of God is the peace, is peace to man? Where else can peace be found but in the message of Jesus? I want to ask you that question this morning. There are a lot of artificial offers of peace, but where else can you really find peace apart from the message of Christmas, the message of Jesus? And I would posit that perhaps the answer is nowhere. We can't find it. We can find artificial peace, or we can find little fragments that ultimately only reflect the true thing but we can't find real peace apart from the message of Jesus. I wanna close with this. The best gifts that are given always result in a deeper relationship between the giver and the recipient. If you bring that into your earthly relationships, that's true, right? On your anniversary, husbands, when you buy your wife a gift, hopefully your goal is that even more than the gift you're giving, it's the love that increases that in that gift, you're communicating something deeper than the gift itself, and that the relationship begins to be more abundant because of the gift. The relationship grows. Wives, I'm sure you think the same thing. You might not actually frame it that way, but you think of that when you buy your husband a gift or your children a gift, is that ultimately you want this to be something that enhances the relationship. A gift is a way of communicating what's true in the heart, Jesus Christ is the gift of the Father, offering the mending of a broken relationship. There is no gift as powerful and as great as Jesus, because there was no relationship as broken and as marred as ours was with God until he came. And yet there was no relationship that was as as essential as our relationship with God. 
So the only relationship that is essential, or as Jesus said, there is only one necessary thing, the only necessary relationship was marred to a place where there was no hope, and then hope broke through on Christmas morning. We were severed and cut off, and Christ was given in order for us to be brought near. The gift of Christmas is offered to us this morning all over again. That you're loved by God. So much so that he was willing to do everything that needed to be done to mend the relationship. And that is what Christ represents. An all-powerful God who doesn't need to prove his control over the universe because he knows he has it. Don't you love that about our God? He needs no moments of self-exalting reminders that he controls everything. He just does. And then Jesus, the God of peace, who doesn't flinch when the world rages and wars against us and when the world rages and wars against him. He doesn't flinch in fear because he is ultimately at peace. And then he offers that to us. And so this morning, I want to make you an offer that really isn't mine to make except for the authority that's been given to me. And that offer is this, the peace of God that only is offered in Jesus Christ. That there's peace for us. And that he's powerful enough to calm all of our fears, our anxieties, our anger, our frustration, our rage, our bitterness, our hurt, our woundedness. That he's powerful enough to calm those seas. And that that's the offer of Christmas. That when we come and we're able to sing things like Silent Night, the Silent Night represents the soul peace that's offered in Jesus. And only in Jesus. And this morning I want to offer that to you. So if you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Jesus, what a great Savior you are. Prince of Peace. Worthy of our songs. Worthy of our teaching, preaching. Praying. All the adoration we could give would really amount to only a grain of sand in relation to what you deserve. And yet you delight in our songs. You delight in hearing us. And so for those under the sound of my voice, my God, that there needs to be a mending of the relationship between you and them. Lord, would you give them the courage to repent and believe? And Lord, for those of us who feel the distance that is totally unnecessary, but that is very real to us at times, would you remind us that you have crossed the chasm in order to bridge the gap and that you're near to us this morning, Lord. You're present with us this morning, Lord. For the hurting, I ask peace, Lord. For the concerned, the anxious, the fearful, I pray for peace, Lord. But not an artificial peace that comes only from well-meaning sermons or sentiment, but the real thing that comes from you, Lord Jesus. Lord, at thy birth, we worship you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.